Welcome to the Beach and Black Podcast, an award-winning, unofficial podcast on print. For over 10 years, giving you print news, reviews, trivia, and all things happening in the print world. Featuring the host, Rob S. I think the craziest thing that's happened is when Prince invited me and Captain to meet with him in New York in 2010. Captain. Anytime Prince gets on the guitar and he starts getting up near that top fret, just get ready to blow your head off. Player. Oh my god, that's the Minneapolis sound right there. Toe Jam. There's just layers and layers of stuff going on in his music all the time in every speaker. Find Peach and Black on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. This is Sonny T, and you're listening to the Peach and Black Podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is your boy, Mr. Hayes, and you're listening to the Peach and Black Podcast, baby. <laughs> yeah. All right, what's happening, y'all? This is Tony M, and y'all listening to the Peach and Black Podcast. The fellas, getting it in. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Peach and Black Podcast. We are gathered here today to talk to Leroy Bennett, who was with Prince from 1980 until 1994, an incredibly long stretch of time where he was the production and lighting designer with Prince on many, many projects, including some of Prince's biggest concert tours and performances. We're going to get into all sorts of good stuff with Leroy. Hello. I'm here. So thank you so much for coming on the show. We might just start off right back at the beginning. Can you tell us about how you got started in the production business, your background and, and kind of the early days, pre-prints? Pre-prints, okay. Um, pre-prints, I came from a, it's got to start from the very beginning of my life. I, I grew up in a very musical, artistic family. Uh, my mom was a trained opera singer. My father was an interior designer. My mom's dad was a classical pianist. Uh, from the time he was five, he was one of these young prodigies. Uh -huh. And so I was always surrounded by a lot of basically either opera or classical music. Uh, my parents were both into show tunes too, which completely annoyed me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was my childhood, I always just remember as being a very visual, visually musical childhood. I mean, I just, when I heard music, I saw music, uh, whether it was colors or like synesthesia, as they say, yeah. or in a cinematic form where I would picture things in my head when I heard music. It was just, it's just an automatic thing for me. Uh, I, I, I feel music through my whole body. A lot of people do, particularly dancers. But it, it, it has always been a big part of my life, and that's what's drove me to be where I am now, uh, just for my passion. It's, music is, uh, for me, is like breathing air. I mean, it, it goes from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. Mm. So when I was a teenager, I started getting more into uh, popular music, but I had a tendency to search for the non-commercial I didn't like necessarily because it was only AM radio at that point. Uh, yeah. I mean, I had appreciation for it. And then the music back then was a lot better than it is now. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I agree. Um, and <laughs> it was better craftsmanship as far as songwriting goes. Uh, you know, just mm. it was real, real singers, real musicians, real songwriters. Yeah, it was, there was nothing, nothing synthetic about it. And... So I did have an appreciation for it, but I, I, 
I've always been one of those people that I've been kind of the outsider. Uh, I never liked to follow the path of anybody else. And I was that way the way I listened to music for the most part. So, I mean, I started getting into listening to more at that point. It was more of the progressive rock stuff, uh, German electronic music. What about um, Mike Oldfield? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mike Oldfield, Tangerine Dream. Mike uh, Oldfield. Nectar. Aside from Prince, Mike Oldfield is probably my, you know, other top favorite artist. So there you go. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> he he, he, he always throws every that in there just to let you know. Yeah. <laughs> always, I'm always, a Prince podcast and I'm always talking about Mike Oldfield. So. <laughs> Perfect. Um, um, well, I can relate to that. Yeah. So it doesn't sound odd to me. So as I got older, uh, in my mid-teens, you know, my mom was worried because I didn't really have an interest in anything but music. I, all I wanted to do was come home, play music. On, you know, at that point, we had vinyl, the real, the real way of listening to music. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in stereo. I love art. I'm an audiophile, even though I'm a visual guy. Um, and I was always fascinated with high-end audio. So I didn't really know how any of this fit into my life. I just had, I just could visualize that I wanted to be part of the music industry. And I learned that when I was around 14 years old, my father took me to my first concert. And, you know, it was, obviously the production was super basic at that point. It was, uh, we went to go see Three Dog Night. And the opening act was a band called Uriah Heep. Oh, I I didn't know they were on the bill and I didn't know who they were. But it really, it was just, I just remember the feeling of walking into the arena at that time. Of course, everybody could smoke. And so there was a smell mm-hmm. of smoke and pot and patchouli. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it was, you know, all these people dressed up in their suede jackets with the fringe and it was all long hair. <laughs> and I, it was just like, a, it was like I was on a different planet. It's a different it was like world, being in yeah. church. And it was like being in church on a different planet. And it was just this crazy experience. And I thought, I mean, it just moved me so much just walking in and feeling that. Mm. It was scary to a certain point because I had an experience. It was kind of uncomfortable but exciting. And then when Uriah Heep went on the stage, it was like I didn't know these guys, these skinny guys with super long hair and (laughs) high-pitched voices. And I'm going, holy shit, what is this? (laughs) (laughs) And I was sold. That was it. I was sold. I said, I got to be, I, I, I don't know what this is, but I want it. But I want to be in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, mean, I learned, I have an older sister and younger sister and both them my, and my parents, they all played musical instruments. They all sang, they had no problem getting up on stage and stuff. I had a deathly fear of being on stage. I froze. They used, they forced me to go on do like a couple of plays, and I just couldn't do it. It was like a nightmare to me. So, yeah. and I even tried one time, uh, my late teens, trying out as a singer from a, fr- a friend of mine's band. And I lasted five minutes, and I just said, "Sorry, I can't do this. I gotta go." So, <laughs> I I graduated from high school. Still didn't know what I wanted to do, and I hated school, so I didn't want to go to university. I was a terrible student, and my mom was teaching at a private school at that point, and she invited me, said, why don't you just come back for an extra school, extra year of school? And I said, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I knew, I knew the kids in the class because she had taught them in fourth grade when they were younger, so they were just a year behind me. 
And so I hung out at school, and I, I learned more in that one year of private school than public school. <laughs> and uh, I had an amazing art teacher that really opened my eyes to artistically who I was inside. Despite my father being an incredibly talented, artistic guy, it just never, he never kind of, I don't know if he saw it in me, and it just kind of exposed me to things. It just never pushed me in that direction. It's always a teacher. So many people talk about, you know, there was like, there was this one teacher at school who like saw something and yeah, it's always a good story about that teacher. Yeah, well, teachers are amazing, you know, yeah. and it's, that's why they're there to guide you. Yeah. She really, what, what she did was she opened my eyes to my color sense. And even then I didn't realize what all of that meant. I graduated, I was working in a clothing store. I have a massive addiction to fashion. I have since I was 15. So uh-huh. it's, well, and it, it, this all kind of fits into the story and how I related with Prince. Because for me, another thing that I liked about the whole experience of my first concert was the fashion and the whole vibe. And it just, it's rock and roll and music and all of that, rock and roll in general, it's an attitude. It's a way of life. It's it's the full spectrum, and that's what I absolutely mm. adored about Prince, and that's why we get along so well. But I was working in a clothing store, and over the summer, I met a band. My manager invited me to a party at, at, at his cousin's house, and it was, it was a pool party. So I went there. This band was there. It was from Rhode Island, uh, but they were living down in Washington D.C. playing the club circuit up and down the East Coast, and I got along with them really well, and. You know, I was excited. I was talking to some band guys, despite the fact that they were just local kind of club guys. And uh, they invited me to come down to D.C. and work with them. So I um, moved down to D.C. and I went down there basically to move the gear around. And they had a little lighting system that I ended up taking care of and running. And I learned at that point that I could perform musically through lights. Mm. And it was, yeah. it was just kind of when it all just kind of clicked into place. It just felt really comfortable. I could express musical mm. emotion visually. You're like, it was this, really is, basic. this is what I can do. I can't be on stage, but I can be back here doing this. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I worked with them for a few months. I went back to Rhode Island. Uh, I got a job at a lighting company there uh, that leased lights out for tours. And I went out on my first tour as a technician. You know, I learned what it was like to be on tour, and it obviously opened my eyes quite wide to the whole professional mm. touring industry. And I, I learned a lot. Then I learned a lot as a technician, and, and the director on that tour took me under his wing and kind of showed me how to design a show and what it would, you know, technically how to do drawings and stuff like that. I went, and then I left that company, and I worked for a company out here in Los Angeles. It was a British company that had an office out here. And I did a couple of tours with them. And the director of the company took me out to dinner one night and he said, um, I have a feeling you want to be more than just a technician. I said, yeah, I, I, want, to, I want to design shows. I want to you know, run shows and all that. And he goes, well, the next client that comes through that doesn't have a director uh, or a designer, I'm going, to, I'm going to put your name forward. I said, cool. So he called me maybe a month later, and he says, I have a client. His name is Prince. I said, okay, cool. This was 19, late 79, early 80, I believe. 
So at that point, have you ever even heard that name? I heard the name one time prior because one of the guys on the backline crew for Boston, Michael, was into Prince. Okay. And he and he showed me a video of Prince performing um, "I Want to Be Your Lover," and I thought, "Whoa, uh, that yeah. guy's he's pretty wild." <laughs> <laughs> But it didn't really sink at that point and sink in. And, you know, it's just a really interesting, you know, musical artist. So I uh, ended up flying from, I grew up in Rhode Island. So I flew from Rhode Island out to L.A. to meet with Stephen Farnoli, the manager at the time, and uh, Prince. And the, he was, Prince was shooting a, a video. So I came in and we said hi and we just talked and seemed to get along and you know, the vibes were good. And I flew home and I got the job and I started the design process. Little did I know that the director of the company that I worked for, lighting company I worked for, had told the management that I had designed these other shows. I think he said I designed Aerosmith or something like that, which is a load of shit. <laughs> which is pretty big, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I got in there. I knew I could do it. I mean, there was just, I knew what it would take, and, and I just had the passion and drive to do it. I flew out to Minneapolis for the rehearsals. It wasn't in the middle of winter, was it? No, it was springtime. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, so not, not too cold then. Okay. No, I hadn't been initiated to the, uh, the Minnesota yeah. <laughs> uh, winter yet, so that was good. And the first five days were hell, to put it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> and Bobby Z could tell you from his point of view. I mean, that the band was awesome, but you know, he, Bobby was the one that basically saved me from just falling into a zillion pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, he was just Prince was relentless on me, and I knew I could do it. But he was just putting me through. He, Bobby said he would just say stuff to you just to see if you would do it. And he said he was asking you to do things he had no idea what he was asking you to do. But he wants to find to see if you were doing. We've we've got some experience with that. <laughs> so yeah, um, you know, he'd get me to go up on a ladder and move a light around and see if I would do it. And he didn't, you know, he'd ask me to focus a light, but he didn't know if it was right or wrong or anything. He just, I think, he just wanted to see if he could break me, and that's the way he was. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me a lot of the, um, I don't know if you're watching the, the Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary that's at the moment. It's the same thing. It's like anytime Jordan had like a rookie on the team, he would just get, he'd just spend the whole season just getting stuck into this rookie. Like with the idea being that like, if you can't handle the pressure for me in the training room, you won't be able to handle the, the pressure of, you know, the end of the year final kind of thing. So. <laughs> well, it was pretty much that. I mean, I went back to my hotel room every night crying. Wow. I go sit in my room and I go, I know I can do this. He would just give me a break. Yeah. And, you know, I'd go into back to rehearsals the next morning and I'd have, you know, a knot in my stomach. Uh, but I kept plowing through it. Uh, eventually, Farnoli showed up and he saw what I was doing and he, he just told Prince to give me, you know, ease up on me, give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he did. And he saw that I was, you know, I was very passionate about what I was doing. I, I was doing a great job. I was on top of the game. And uh, from that point on, we started to develop a really close relationship. It didn't happen immediately, but, you know, he appreciated what I was doing for him. He tr started to trust me. After we did the ill-fated first few shows of 
Dirty Mind tour. So yeah, because you came in, did you come in at the start of Dirty Money? You came in like partway through that tour? No, right at the very beginning. Right at the start, okay. Yeah, when we were doing the theaters. Yeah. And he told Prince, uh, uh, Prince told Stephen after we had to cancel the, the rest of the tour that he never wanted to do another thing without me. So, and Stephen called me and told me that. Wow. There you so go. then... That had to give you some sort of, I feel like I'm doing the right thing then. Yeah, it did. Yeah. I mean, it was, I was so focused on trying to do the right thing. And, and I was also focused on my craft and what I wanted to do and things, how I saw the music and, you know, how I wanted to design the shows and all of that. So it wasn't a good percentage. It, it hasn't till the last few years has all that sunk into me in my relationship with him. We can get into this later, but it was just, I didn't, because I didn't really, he wasn't very popular at that time. And I didn't, mm. you know, I was just this, I knew that he and I were young and just beginning our careers. So it was kind of interesting in that way. Then we went off and did, we played in New York at the Ritz. Ah, uh, yeah. And that was kind of the beginning of, that was the turning point in everything. Uh, it was shortly after we did that show that uh, the Rolling, Rolling Stone came on, out with an article about Prince. And I believe that that show also was the, when Andy Warhol was there and Mick Jagger and the guys from Kiss. And there was a whole bunch. It was just, it was just a packed house of celebrities and fans and stuff. So it was wow. pretty exciting at that point. That article came out and then, you know, just raving about Prince and saying how great he was and, you know, how amazing he is live. I never read the article, but, uh, you know, I just, all I know is that Stephen told me it was just a phenomenal article. So the next thing I know, we're going out and playing clubs. And it was totally the opposite of what had happened on the, <laughs> the, on the theater tour where we play in a 2,000-seat theater and 200 people would show up, mm. if, if that. So it was, it was chaos. We'd show up at these clubs and there'd be, felt like thousands of people just jammed outside trying to get in. So wow. I mean, it, was, it was really exciting at that point. So that's, that's basically the beginning of my career with Prince. Okay, one question down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously that went from the Dirty Mind tour, which I mean, there's not a whole lot of footage of that circulating, but from there to the Controversy tour, which at least in my understanding, it seemed like everything started to get bigger from that point. Like the, the stages started to get bigger. This started to be sort of more of a, a show aspect to it. Do you have any comments about the Controversy tour and about how that might've evolved from the, the Dirty Mind setup? Well, I mean, the, the, the Dirty Mind setup was pretty raw and punky very yep. much like his whole the approach. Al to fit the album, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and the stage set was basic. I mean, obviously his budget was pretty limited at that point. So the, I mean, the stage set was just risers with lights in the face of the, in the fascia of it. Mm. So it was very almost queen-like in that sense, the old queen risers with all the lights in it. And at that point, Prince and I were full on, full stride into our collaborative teamwork, basically. It was when we started having dialogue about where his head was at with the album and what he was thinking about what he wanted to have in the show and the vibe of it. And it was, we were starting to get more into very suggestive sexual side yeah. of things. And for me, 
at that point, particularly in the 80s, Venetian blinds were the, a very suggestive thing. It was this. <laughs> it was, yeah. you know, the, the silhouettes against the, the, the Venetian blinds, the shades. And uh, what was it? What was it? Nine and a half weeks or whatever it was. There was a movie that had Venetian blinds. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. yeah. Hmm. So that was the whole, my, my idea was, I mean, I actually had, <laughs> I had an idea for a stage set, but he, he thought it was a bit too much. I wanted to have a whole stage set. It was based off of the milk bar in Clockwork Orange, where I wanted to have oh. all the risers and the gar- guitar stands and everything were female bodies, much to the, like the bodies in the milk bar. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, women on their hands and knees. It was, it was, it wouldn't have gone down. <laughs> definitely not now. Not now. <laughs> but he, even then, he, the feminist movement was happening at that point. And I'm not, I didn't think of it as a degrading thing so much as I thought the milk bar was pretty cool looking. And mm. so I, it, one thing he said, I think we can't do that. Just I'm afraid of the women's movement. I said, you're right. <laughs> so. Yeah. You must be one of the few people who ever brought something to Prince, and he's like, "No, that's going too far." So that's, that's too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there were there might have been a few more occasions, but it, it was. I because I, also at that at that same time, I wanted to put a bunch of film projectors upstage, shining behind the band, because I always liked when you were sitting Ooh. in movies at that time. Yeah, it was before moving lights, so I liked sitting in the movies, and you could when people were smoking, you could see the light beam from the smoke. Yeah, the beam of the uh, the projection moving around I thought wow that would be cool to put behind the band shining out but what I really want to do is shine project images of orgies all over the audience so that when he's looking out there he's seeing an orgy, an orgy <laughs> on the audience and you know and but the audience is seeing all these beams going on behind the, the, on, on the band but except for the ones that are looking oh, around <laughs> But that was a concept that never happened. So we ended up with Venetian blinds. But, you know, it was... It was a, compromise. The begin- <laughs> oh, that was a compromise, yes. But we did, we did have a brass bed and, 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 mm. and, and all that in the uh, airline seat. Yeah, that, the, the bed starting off then, I mean, and he kept that yeah. idea for a long time. There's a lot of stages I can think of that had a bed or something similar all the yeah. way up into well, the 90s. So, yeah, wow. And so started there. Yep. <laughs> Even Madonna. Well, yes. she used to try to steal. Yes, she she st- tried to steal from us all the time. The next thing we knew, she had a bed. Yeah. So. <laughs> all these guys, they all went to each other's shows and watched. Oh, look at she's doing. Look at he's doing. Let's take this bit and that bit. Oh, yeah. Well, we never think. stole from anybody. Oh, that. there you go. But you know, we, we had this. We had the fire pole and stuff. And I think Adam and eventually had a, a fire pole. Shortly after we did, wow. but um, yeah, I mean, it was. I, I thing is, I've always refused to copy anybody's other sh- anybody else's shit. Especially, I won't redo my own stuff. Mm. <laughs> I've had people ask me, "What well, we liked what you did on that tour? Can you do it again?" I said, "No, no, 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 no. We've already done it. Got time Been to do something that. new." Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, that was the beginning of that whole vibe, and we started. It was. I mean, for me, the theatrical parts of the show really came into play in a major way on Sign of the Times. But it gradually built up from controversy into that point where, Mm. for me, that was, well, Love Sexy was another one where it was the epitome of a real theatrical show. We'll get to that one. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so we used that stage set from controversy into 1999. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, because the, when you were saying um, that you didn't want to, not only did you not copy other people, but you wanted to steer clear as much as you could of your own designs and, and production ideas. At the beginning, though, there was, at least to us visually, some sort of commonality. So like when you go from controversy to 1999, it's not a completely blank slate, is it? You're still using some of the same elements. I think from a stage setup perspective, some of the colors also started coming in around that time, obviously with the 1999 album and the whole color scheme of that album. One thing that just kind of popped up into my head was, and you mentioned your own fascination with colors earlier on, was the color scheme and concept around the album and that era something that you guys also discussed? Or did that come out more from from the perspective of, oh, we want the stage to look like this and maybe that, and the, and the live show, and then maybe that transferred across to the album, et cetera? Uh, I, there was no obvious discussion about it. It just naturally happened. I mean, there was, hmm. there was no, maybe subconsciously, that's my, that was my choices, but mm -hmm. he never got involved with colors. Really? Wow. Yeah. Well, not with me. Okay. It, was all, it was always down to what I felt was the right thing to do. Uh, there, I mean, he would, he would sometimes give me lighting cues only based on what he was going to do on stage. So if he just wanted to be backlit or he didn't want any light on him because he was doing something that he didn't want people to see. I find that really interesting because I remember in a possibly only one, maybe two interviews, Prince was talking about this idea of, you know, certain songs have certain colors. And I'm just wondering if, if you're saying that he didn't really direct you to do any certain colors on certain songs, if you colored those songs for him and then he, after that, associated that song with that color because that's what he kept seeing. That's, that's really it, interesting it, to me. It could be, yeah, because he never really discussed colors with me. It yeah. was just how I, how I felt about it. Um, wow, anyway. <laughs> but when you think about that 1999 tour, it is, that era especially is so tied to obviously the you know the, the entrance of the color purple into the prince universe but then there are there are other hues and there are other tones the the blues blues and uh, the reds the, yeah the, the reds and the violets and so much of that came out in the cover art to that album and then also on the stage so i guess i was just wondering like it seems to be an incredibly creative period for both of you and there's just this really, really striking visual sense that comes across both on record and on the stage. And, and that's kind of maybe not throughout his entire career, but it seemed to follow him, didn't it? Like when you think about that magnetic Prince persona, those colors that were on that stage, that they come up almost instantaneously when fans think of him these days, mm. I think. Yeah. I mean, it was mainly magentas and blues and reds. They were mm. pretty primary colors most of the time or the prevalent colors, and turquoise blues. I mean, different shades of blues and purples and lavenders. I mean, when I first started, it, the, until we did Purple Rain, the technology was pretty lo-fi. You know, it was park hands, uh, you know, just park hands, if people don't know what those are, it was just um, a park hand was a, a, a literally a, a metal can uh, that had uh, a headlight, car headlight in it. From the uh, at that time, and you just put the color thing in front of it. You put a yeah. yeah. It, the color thing is called a gel, so you put the color filter in front of the bar, and that's so 
you had to make a choice at that point. It wasn't like you had multi cho- multiple choices or, or, or options with the lights at that point. They, when you committed to a color on a light, that was it for the whole show. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, you know, it, whatever it was, the design was a commitment, basically, all the time. Mm-hmm. What I was going to go say about the stage set, because we used the stage set from Controversy, and then I modified it for... 1999 was, I, the modification was really, as I, I automated the blinds upstage where they could, they had, they were motorized, but on controversy, they were just static blinds. And mm. I also put mirror on the bottom side of the, of the, uh, the slats so that I was constantly trying to do whatever I could to, with the limitations of what technology was at that point, to kind of emulate what was going on in my head. You know, and mm. with automating the blinds and putting the mirror on the bottom side of the of the blinds, I could kind of make the lights shoot up behind behind the band uh, on the stage set because of the way that the the reflection would shift. Were there some things like that you saw in your head, but you just couldn't make happen due to hmm. the technology? You know, it's just it's just not possible to do this thing I want to do. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it it was movement. Because for me, lighting, when moving lights came out, it was a natural thing for me. It wasn't like, it was the thing that I'd been sitting and waiting for for a while. Mm. And so I latched on it immediately because I, I could just, that's how I saw the lighting happening. You know, it was like in swells in the music or hits or whatever. It definitely, the moving lights got me closer to mm. what was going on. I always saw it in a very three-dimensional way. So it, it, it was all about mm. depth and all that stuff. It was also about negative space, too. Our shows were very dark. Yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were going we to ask you about that because my recollection from being a massive uh, lover of Queen as well, I think you have a, quite a fondness for the band. They were, if not the first, certainly one of the first bands who had started using moving lights around the early 80s, I if I remember correctly. And it was just, it created this incredibly stunning, not only backdrop, but it became a part of their sh- a huge part of their show. And yeah. um, obviously you guys started using that ar- around that time and going onwards. So but by the time Purple Rain was in full effect, you were behind the board, right? And man- manipulating all that and, and controlling it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was physically running lights until 1994. Wow. And that was, he was the last artist I actually did that for. Oh, really? Yeah. Now when you've got I, an army walk- of, of workers. Yeah. yeah. So when I walked away, that was it. I didn't do it anymore. Wow. That is an incredible... I mean, we were going to touch on this uh, maybe a little later on, but you know, 14 years is an incredibly long period of time. But in addition to everything else you were involved in, that must have been an incredibly full-on experience. I mean, you have to be on every night, right? Oh, yeah. No, it was... I was talking about this the other day. And it's the reason why I was considered the sixth member of the band is because I had to be as laser focused as the band members as far as where mm-hmm. his head, you know, all his hand signals and where he was going. Because it wasn't, yeah. as you know, he would, when you think he's going to go right, he'd go left. Mm-hmm. And he had to be on top of it at all times. And it wasn't like, I mean, if there was a horn hit or, or key hit or whatever, or turnaround, all that stuff i had to be on you had to be on that as well yeah yeah wow so would that mean that for example at a rehearsal 
or a set rehearsal slash sound check. Or I think Wendy and Lisa were saying the other day that sound checks basically became rehearsals anyway before shows. So, you know, we, they might, you, might, you might as well call it that. Would you have been present for a lot of those or, or many of those? Oh, yeah, because there was, there was multiple things going on at that time. I mean, there was we were rehearsing songs, rearranging songs. If, you know, doing a new arrangement for that night, if I wasn't present, <laughs> I would have mm. missed the memo and that would have been good. Mm. So I, I had to be equally in tune and on top of it. I had to be at sound checks all the time. What I wouldn't do, I only did one, I believe, and that was just the after show things. And then I did, I did one, and I just told them I wasn't going to do them anymore. <laughs> I said I, yeah. I checked out after the show. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> you got to, you got to. Some people got to sleep. <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I mean, I was lucky. I got a lot of slack when it came to stuff like that. Mm. Speaking of uh, the show, moving on from '99 to the purple, the Mammoth Purple Rain tour. Uh, in that YouTube video you were talking about yesterday, the, the live stream of that Revolution show from 85, prior to the concert, Bobby was saying that, yeah, you, you and Prince had this unique creative relationship where you worked together constantly on the, on the production of the show and everything that was in, involved in that, including some of the, or I should say all of the vignettes and story scenes and transitions throughout the shows. And that was a tour where there was a lot of that, it really probably up to that point, was the most transitioning or transitional elements and vignetting and, and, and story aspect became really apparent on stage. How much of that do you, I guess, you know, recall? And also how much of that do you think added versus detracted from the, from the experience? Um, well, it was never, my, my theory has always been that it's whatever I do is an enhancement and an extension of what's going on and never distraction or detraction, because if it is, I'm not doing my job right. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want people to notice me. I mean, there are moments dynamically that happen every once in a while. I just, yeah, I want the, the audience to feel it and not be obvious. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's like I can make sound louder visually hmm. and more impactful yeah. that way with lights. That's a really good point. Wow. Yeah, like you said before, you got, you got a big horn hit. That can just pass. But then if you're also doing, you know, a whole bunch of lights on at the same time as that horn hit, yeah, you, you, people are going to feel that more than if that wasn't there. That's a good point, yeah. It, yeah, it hits you harder. So, yeah. that, I mean, the Purple Rain Tour was, I mean, obviously, is the most technically complex thing we had done to that point, but I believe probably one of the technically most complicated tour that had been done at that point also. I mean, we, we were constantly hmm. striving to push the envelope all the time. Um, I know he was with obviously with all his instruments and how he pushed the technology of all the different electronic instruments and making them do things that he wanted that they weren't designed to do. And that's the same thing that I would do too mm -hmm. uh, with, with all my things. I wouldn't use, not always use the instruments that my, or my instruments in the obvious way. So we, I mean, we had lasers and in the way I wanted to use lasers, I didn't want to use it necessarily as laser beams, but the technology to use through fiber optics. It's somebody, I guess, when I was watching Bobby's interview yesterday, somebody was questioning him about the kick drum, the 10K that was in front of the kick drum. Mm. <laughs> uh, I'll give the secret away because he did. <laughs> he didn't want to give the secret sauce. <laughs> you know, I, well, I've got the, the secret sauce is there was a laser inside of it. It was, um, mm. there was, there were, it had lights as well as 
laser with a diffraction on it. So that's where you got a kind of kind of diffracted, swirly pattern of lights on, uh-huh. the, on, the, on the on the face of it. And then we had lasers on Sheila's lucite drum sticks and all that stuff. Mm. So it, it was really funny because the laser company on that tour was really upset with me because nobody saw the lasers as lasers. Because <laughs> 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 I, mean, I had I used also the lasers in the fiber optics for the shower. And the, and the tub, but you know that was also the first time I had used moving lights, the, uh, the very lights that that had been out for about two years at that point. I love that moment in the Purple Rain tour when you're doing. Um, I think it's like the intro to "I Would Die for You," and it's just like you know it's kind of quiet, just the hi hats kind of going, and then you hit those big hits, and then the lights just go boom across the, the massive crowd. Yeah, um, I don't know if you know the bit I'm talking about, but that's big house a, lights. Yeah, cool moment. I mean it was. It, as new and interesting as the technology was, it was still so basic compared to what it is now. Everything seemed brighter at that point because it's just how your eyes would see things. But compared to what it is now, it was really dark. And But mm. we ran our shows dark to begin with. Prince and I always believed that it wasn't what you saw that made the strongest point. It was what you didn't see. Because you had to, mm. you have to let people use their imagination. Let them think and feel what they want to feel versus telling them how to feel or showing them how to feel. Uh-huh. That's why, I mean, he, we also, I mean, we were big on the slow reveal where it's, it, you could hear him, but you couldn't see him. And yeah. we, we both agreed on that, that, you know, the thing is, is that you don't have to give everything away right at, you know, the audience is so happy to be there. And if they can hear you, just smell your presence on stage, That'll drive them crazy. Mm-hmm. It gives you another opportunity for another reveal. Yeah, and so that's how we used to approach things all the time, where it would just it was it was a tease, and you know, and, and I'm sure you guys know. I mean, it was like he was big on not giving everybody everything. It was always keeping mm-hmm. people hungry, hungry for more. Yep, never give them exactly what they want. Right? Yeah. yeah, well, he was the ultimate rock star. He knew exactly. <laughs> every aspect of what it was to be a rock star. Mm. It's interesting to hear you say that. That's almost like a Hitchcock movie in some respects. It's the, the suspense, that the reveal, It's the anticipation just kills you and then <laughs> boom, you know, the opening chords to Let's Go Crazy or whatever. So Yeah. Yeah. We did shows where, I can't remember, where we, I think it was on Parade, where we played a whole song behind the curtain. I can't remember. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um... I do recall something. Uh, yeah, there was a show. I th- it was either before or after the show. Like, yeah, I think they played an entire song without even putting we the curtain the, up. Yeah, yeah, the first show, the whole, the first song was the, the, the first yeah. entire song. It was behind a curtain. Yeah, I remember <laughs> something. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't Crazy. think I think I don't think we told Steve Farnoli. <laughs> he says, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, no, 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 no. It's okay. Don't. <laughs> what's going on? The curtain's not going up. <laughs> Classic. Well, speaking of 1986 and the parade tour, uh, that tour was much more, visually it looked like a stripped back approach but there was still a lot on going on on the stage a lot of different colors and you know even the fashion itself you had the checkerboard stage set up you know with the black and white um super interesting and then obviously the lighting was really getting powerful at, at that point as well in 
in his career and, and in yours. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was that year in particular was the same year that you did lighting design for Queen's Some Kind of Magic Tour. Mm-hmm. And I I know from um, from hearing you talk about that a little bit, you, that was a there's a story behind that as well around oh, yeah. the, the Queen tour. Um, <laughs> But the thing I wanted to touch on was, you know, what that was like for, for you from a creative perspective, because presumably you still basically did the lighting design for that, for the tour for Queen, but at the same time, you're, you're getting ready to go on the parade tour, the hit and run parade tour in Europe, the Europe leg in uh, around the same time in 1986. What, what were the similarities and differences between working with, with those crews and arguably some of the biggest and best live performers of all time, right? I mean, Prince and Freddie, geez. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was it was it was pretty amazing because I was jumping between both things. Freddie was a massive fan of Prince. We had a we sat and had a long discussion with. I was talked to Freddie about Prince for a while because oh <clears throat> he was yeah he was very fascinated by him. I, and I can't remember exactly what we were talking about, and for some reason Freddie. We were talking about Prince, and you know, obviously, Freddie was attracted to him in his androgyny and all that stuff. And Freddie, we just remember Freddie going back when I was a little girl, and it was. (laughs) 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 But it was. But the thing about the Queen shows, they had a very distinctive style, and it was the park hands again, in mass. It mm. was just big blocks of color. Yeah. And I've always been a fan of doing things in mass, you know, strength in mass. And uh, that's, I took that thought and that creative thought into the parade tour uh, where I created basically were triangulars, triangles of lights with color changes on. So... Uh, all the lights could change. They, they had multiple choices of colors on them. But I did them so that they were, it was stacking the pars in a way that it, it was two triangles in one. So you, I could still have a, a big block of a triangular color, like a wall of light. But then I had a second layer of parkins with color changes just slightly set back that you didn't see. So I could, I, because you couldn't change the colors quickly from one to another all the time. You'd mm. have to scroll for certain colors unless they were right next to each other because it was, the colors were on a scroller. But it would just allow me to make these big blasts of color and, and, and add a lot more power to things. And it gave me a lot more versatility. So it was taking that mentality of big power washes, basically, and adding them into that show. Hmm. So very different, obviously very different stage setups, very different uh, oh, yeah. performers, right? And comparing both bands, uh, they're almost at opposite ends of the spectrum in some respects, but both create this massive emotional response from the audience. Well, here, Prince and Freddie had, were the masters of commanding the audience. Oh, yeah. They were very similar in that way. You know, Freddie was a rock star as well. I mean, there's not a lot of true rock stars that have ever existed in this world. And Freddie was one of them as well as Prince. I was just thinking, what similarities did you see with Freddie and Prince? Like, were they like so, were they both so down with every single detail that was going on on that stage? 
was yes. really that I mean, much into it about the reveal and all that stuff. Oh, totally. Ah. Uh, he was, he was, you know, he was an amazing performer. Yeah. You know, he was into the, Freddie was into the theatrics of it. I yeah. Mean, he was very flamboyant. Sure. I mean, he was very theatrical. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they might have had different, slightly different styles or very different styles, but they performed at that same level. It was just full on. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you got me sitting on the edge of my seat thinking about Freddie Mercury and you chatting about Prince. <laughs> chatting oh, yeah. about all things Prince. That's an absolutely un- unbelievable. That's something I've never. Just that idea. That, that idea has yet yeah, never even entered my head that Freddie was a fan of Prince. I've just never even thought about it. Oh, he was a massive fan. That's how I got the job. Wow. That's hmm. crazy. So, was there any wow. um, conflict of interest there when. If they were touring at the same time, and, and were they both after you, and, and so what what would happen in the, in those kind of situations? Going into that'd be a tough story. choice to think. Oh, do I do, do, I do it? <laughs> Prince and Revolution I, or well, Queen? Or? <laughs> I think I'm sure you. I, I know you've heard the story a little bit, but I, yes. I, I don't know how much yes. you've heard of it. But it was it was not one of my favorite parts of my career. I mean, I never regret anything I've ever done. It was just it was a thing. I, I don't regret. I just feel bad that I just wasn't able to do the tour with Queen the way I had been asked to do. And what happened was that they approached me to design this, uh, the, their tour under the premise that I would go out and operate the, the entire tour. So I called Farnoli and I said, look, I've had this opportunity to come to me with Queen. They, I mean, I'm a massive fan and they want me to design the tour and go out and operate it, but I can only do it if I do the whole tour. And Mm. Stephen said, well, you know, that's cool because Prince is he's, you know, he's recording. He's not doing anything right now. So, you know, absolutely, you're, f- f- you're free to go. And uh. so I went back and we made the deal. And then somewhere between that point and shortly, well, shortly after, it's just I get a phone call. Roy, you have to fly out to Los Angeles now. Uh <laughs> and <laughs> on a dime, Prince is like, "I'm going to tour. Let's go." <laughs> well, he, well, he was prior to all that. I mean, I, I mean, I had worked with other artists when he wasn't doing anything, cause, and he didn't like it. He was very possessive of a lot of people, and mm. uh, and he, I was one of them. And he didn't like that I went out and worked with other people. And I explained to him, I said, "You know that when I go out on tour and, and I'm working with other people and I'm doing these other designs, I'm using these opportunities." to work on concepts and different ideas that I've got that are come back and use with us, but they won't be exactly, they won't be anything like it. It's just me working things out. You know, he understood, he understood that it was important because it would just broaden my creative abilities and he begrudgingly let me go out and do it. But I think the queen thing was the straw that broke the camel's back because when I came back, flew out to Los Angeles, I mean, he, I, he was pissed. Mm-hmm. And I went into the office and I was talking to Bob Cavallo and Steven and it got really heavy. And I was told that there was no, under no circumstances was I going to go out and do tour with uh. Queen. And, and I, you know, I obviously explained, I said, well, you know I committed to this. And they said, we don't care. You're not going to do it. Do you understand? And I thought, oh, fuck. Okay, <laughs> I, then. I know it. I know what that means. <laughs> I value yeah. my life. So, <laughs> um, the next thing I know, Prince, the door opens in, in Bob's office, and Prince walks in and he looks at me and he goes, 
what's the name of Queen's single? <laughs> Prince of the Universe. <laughs> and he laughed. <laughs> Walks out, slams the door, and that was it. Bob looked at me, goes, you got the message? So, oh, God, that's uh, hilarious. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's, that, that's hilarious because the song's actually Princes of the Universe and yeah. it's from that album of the same year. Oh, that is so yeah, he's, he, he's, he's obviously picked up on that. Do you think that was yeah. just his sense of, sense of humor coming through maybe? Oh, uh, it was a sense of humor and jealousy coming out of exactly yes. at the same time. <laughs> so. and there's also that message behind the whole point of him coming in and saying that as well. <laughs> right. He's basically saying, you work for me, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm more important. I'm, I'm, much at a, I'm at a much higher level than them. So, I mean, fortunately, they understood the whole situation. So I ended up still designing it. I went over for rehearsals, and, and that was it. I just was really bummed that I actually had to turn the show over. I was still operating all the shows that I ever did and designed. Mm. So hmm. it was a really big disappointment. So you still did over. design all that. You just didn't run it yourself. Yeah, yeah. which oh, okay. really kind of hit bummed me out after I watched how the guy was operating it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. No matter what I well, said to him, he did his own thing. Creative. Uh, yeah. I remember. <laughs> this is probably a good a good time for me to just quickly throw in before we keep moving. That as a young kid, I remember picking up the VHS copy of that live at '86 Wembley show. And aside from obviously being a magnificent performance, you know, the band of Queen are firing on all cylinders, I do recall that how brilliant it was. So, you know, just f for me as a young kid looking at all that, the, the lighting added so much. It, it, it just added, I know, I'm going to use a pun here because it's some kind of magic tool, but it did add this element of, of magic to so much of their so much of their discography. So it was, it was just brilliant. I mean, so, countless examples of me as a young kid just sitting up late at night uh, and looking at that show and in wonder, wonderment and amazement. So I'm just so happy that you ended up doing the the um, the work on the lighting because it did it really did add to the show. Yeah, it was it was definitely not, it, it was a it was a double edged sword. It was the highlight one of the, one mm. of the highlights of my career, but it was also one of the big disappointments at the same time. Not working for Prince was a disappointment by any stretch of the imagination. It was mm. just two amazing things happening at the same time. Just having to make that choice, yeah. Crazy. Well, he always took, he had first right of refusal at all times. Yeah. Yeah. Did, just before we move on, we're hoping to just quickly touch on the Sign of the Times tour, but I'm just wondering, you know, you, you spoke about that, uh, you know, you and Freddie sitting talking talking about Prince and Prince's show, et cetera. On, was the shoe ever on the other foot, so to speak? Did, did you and Prince ever discuss Queen or, or their performance? I, I know it, this is probably a weird time to bring it up considering the story we just um, <laughs> left off on. But, <laughs> um, but I, 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 you know, we've heard around the traps that he actually, that was almost like a backhanded compliment in many respects, that he was actually like a closet Queen fan. He was possibly, listening or, to it, yeah. You know. I know, I know he had a huge appreciation for who they were and particularly Freddie because Prince had a lot of respect for any performer that was, an, you know, had their shit together and was a, a true, unique, powerful performer. And Freddie was one of those. So he had uh, a yeah. lot of respect to it. He wouldn't, he wouldn't openly admit it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he and I used to hang out and just talk about all sorts of music, different artists and stuff. In the earlier days when he went over to the Purple House, it was not purple at the time, but, mm. you know, we talked about this, 
Sex Pistols and The Clash. He was a huge Clash fan. And, uh, you know, Fleetwood Mac and all, all, all sorts of other stuff. And, and I would tell him what I was into, and sometimes he would be into it, and sometimes he would laugh at me. But, mm. you know. <laughs> like, what are you listening to that for? <laughs> well, I, we were on a flight one time, and I was listening to Jane's Addiction's first album. And mm. I had headphones on, and I was sitting right next to him. And I guess it was, it was a song, Coming Down the Mountain. And... He goes, what are you listening to? I said, do you want to hear it? I put my headphones on him. And he just listened for a moment, and he just took him off and just shook his head. At him. <laughs> he looked, looked at him and just shook his head. <laughs> oh, Wasn't funny. up his alley. <laughs> I think he just didn't. Yeah, yeah it, you never know. I mean, I, a lot of it yeah. sometimes was just for show. Yeah. Hmm. Moving on to the Sign of the Times tour now, which is sort of where we are chronologically. Oh, yeah. I mean, that to me just seems like a massive leap again just watching that DVD and just seeing the amount of lights on that show and that that massive backdrop with the like the city scene and this sort of thing and I mean my first image when I think about it is that intro where it's all dark and just the spotlight on cats and then suddenly it's bam with all this yellow light into play of the sunshine I mean that must have been like just a, an absolute joy to work on that tour or perhaps oh, maybe the opposite was, opinion <laughs> <laughs> No 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 it was it was <laughs> because the technology was still new Thing I, I love technology. I hate seeing it. Um, mm. I don't. I don't. And I'm, I don't mean physical sense. Sometimes, yes, in the physical sense, but also emotionally, because I find technology very cold. And you have to to give it a human element. It takes a long time and a lot of patience to make that happen. You know, I didn't. I had moving lights, but I didn't like moving them just to move them. They so had to have a purpose to them, and a lot of it, it wasn't just, if you moved them, they had to move in time, in the timing, in the, the, you know, the dynamics of a song or the emotion of that moment. And it took hours and hours, and it sometimes took 10 hours to program a song. Mm. And it was, that, that show was a very theatrical show. It was, it was the most theatrical at that point, yeah, it was it was a massive leap into theater. It was like a Broadway rock and roll show, and that's a good way I mean, to describe I, it. Yeah, <laughs> he showed me the picture of the album cover or the backdrop, and he said, "I just want the show to look like this." I said, "Okay." So then I decided that I was going to make it into three dimensional pieces. You know, it was a three dimensional set because starting with lighting and then getting into production design, for me, it, it was always the set designers and then the lighting designers, but they never actually worked together so well. Because sometimes the set designers would do their own thing and then the lighting would have oh, to work yeah. around, whatever. And that's why I got into production design or set design, because I believe they were all one unit. And so I then took the moving lights and I started burying them in the windows of the buildings. Uh, so that when I could have, when I didn't want to use the buildings there all the time, I was able to, basically the buildings could emanate energy from them. And that was how I would do it. So that they weren't just big flat pieces just sitting there. Uh, they had the neon signs mm. on them and stuff, but it was just being able oh, to... Oh yeah, all uh, the neon. Yeah. Ugh, yeah, all the neons. <laughs> Real neon too. <laughs> um, yeah. But it was just, I, I believe in depth and, and layers, and, and, and it was just how I was taking that whole concept even further. And, you know, the, that set had a lot of depth and layers to it, 
And there, again, oh, we were doing something that nobody had ever done before. Yeah, and all those neon signs were real, real neon, which, you know, nowadays it's all LED flexi line, which is not real mm. neon, but it's a lot more practical <laughs> than something like that. So we had a truckload just of neon spare parts. Yeah, because they, 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 they can just break. They're pretty fragile, especially when you move setting up every show and back down again. Yeah, I mean, they wow. were, we built them in a way that because you have to put them on little, you have to have them on like a little set, like little plinths that they sit on that have kind of a little flexibility to them so that when they're jug- <laughs> driving down the road, jumping up and down in their boxes mm. and stuff, they're, they're not getting, it's something to soften the blow, but still the crew would take the boxes out and there'd be a, a box full of glass dust sometimes. <laughs> oh. But, Depending on the drive, so I mean, it was it was a lot of work. You mentioned the um, the album cover for Sign of the Times that that you know he showed that to you. Do you remember the genesis of, of that actual album cover? Or I mean, even just looking at it from a distance looks like someone's pieced that together clearly, right? With the different elements, whether it's you know the the grill of the car underneath the drum set and, the, and then the backdrop. Well, the backdrop was from Chan Hassan Dinner Theater from their show uh, Guys and Dolls. It literally was for uh, Broadway, <laughs> from a Broadway show. Well, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> musical. <laughs> Broadway and Chan Hassan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he got a hold of it. Um, he liked the vibe of it, I think, and obviously, what it was, it was the kind of funky urban vibe to it. Yeah. And so it was set up in our rehearsal warehouse. And it was just what the set decoration was just uh, another extension of what had been happening on prior tours where it got more and more complex, where the like Pierrot dolls and the, the, the face masks and uh. we just always, there was more, you know, fabric being draped all over everything. It just kind of get, it was more and more crap on stage all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and grew. the crew the, the crap just kept growing you know it was yeah. like a virus um wow. <laughs> but it, it was it was bohemian funk basically wow i've never heard anyone describe it like that it's so it's such an apt yeah. <laughs> description and the, you know that the pontiac front end grill was part of the of the stage set so it was the approach was to make it a cross pollination for me. It was theater, rock, industrial, urban feel to it, and uh, that's why, like with the pods, the big hexapods that came down, and stuff that had this mm. aluminum extrusion made just for uh, the, the grills inside them. So that what it did was the lights inside of it would bounce around inside the extrusion so that it would make the whole mm. face of these pods glow as well as the lights passing through it. It was just trying to really make it a really colorful, funky playground was, was what it was at that time. Playground in the sunshine. Yep. It would be remiss of me considering that you're on the Peach and Black podcast. It would be rem- completely remiss of me not to ask you. <laughs> the about, color. <laughs> again, the colors, peach and black for this era. What, what are your kind of... Uh, Overall thoughts about that, and, and I guess your well, you know, I mean, with your was, color background and your love of colors. Yeah. It was it was a color that existed in the costume. It wasn't something that we did with lights. Yeah, so. I was just thinking that it's, it wasn't so obvious. It wasn't obvious in the lights, but the clothes he was wearing, there was a lot of that peach and black. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I he never asked me to make the thing look peachy. 
Peachy, <laughs> make it peachy. <laughs> but what he, what he did do, we were, we were programming a um, hot thing, and he came in when we were doing it. And at that time, all the moving lights, they, they use patterns that you put into. Oh, the, the I know exactly what you're going to say because we talked yes. about this. He was wearing that black outfit with like all, all these sort of colorful circles on it, and you matched yeah, well, that he, with the lighting. We noticed that. It's the other way around. Ah. I was, I was programming Hot Thing with all the lights on the buildings, doing these cones, kind of moving around with the colors and stuff. And he came in and he's standing next to me. He goes, wow, that's cool. I'm going to make an outfit like that. Oh, and the wow. next thing we know, the, the outfit showed up. So it was the, out, the lighting made the outfit. Oh, wow. No, so I remember when we did the, the commentary for that DVD, I'm like, look at the outfit, the, the, the thing, it matches with the lights. And it's like, oh, wow, look at that. Yep. Wow. Got it wrong. Got it wrong completely wrong. <laughs> we got it the other yeah, wrong, wrong way, way around. around. Yeah. I did have some influence on him every once in a while. Oh, yeah. As far as style. <laughs> I just wanted to touch on that, the car, the front of the car grill on, you know, in front of that drum kit. And mm -hmm. the fact that he brought back that almost exactly same concept in One Night Alone except it was a Mercedes grill on the front of the keyboard in, uh, what was that, 2002? Mm -hmm. And I thought, because he didn't always revisit, you know, things like that. But then I saw this Mercedes grill turn up on a keyboard in 2002, and I'm like, that's very similar to, you know, it's still the front of a car grill on an <laughs> instrument on stage, yeah. which was, yeah, was interesting. Yeah, well, grill's a grill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was his thing, though. I mean, he didn't, I mean, for him to revisit something, that's, that's his branding in a way, you know, very out. So it, he was allowed to do that. Yeah, he was allowed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then going forward into Love Sexy, which was just, I think you've described it as the pinnacle, just like the ultimate, like that stage was just, like we've talked about that stage, we've reviewed that concert, and half the talk was about the stage and the lighting and everything. What can you tell us about Love Sexy? That was, I mean, there's a basketball court, There's, it's just insane. <laughs> It had everything except for the kitchen sink. Although and the car. Can't forget the car. <laughs> the car, well, it, it started out to have a lot of things. First of all, we'd never played in the round before. And not a lot of shows mm. had been done in the round up to that point, particularly rock shows. So that was a big challenge. And how do you make a theatrical show uh, happen in the round? Because you have to worry about sight lines and all that stuff. So it was, it was, that was quite a challenge. So that's how we ended up with the, the trellises and the bridge and all that stuff on, on hydraulics that would pop up and yeah. make these kind of semi-transparent theatrical scenes. But yeah, we, we were talking about having waterfalls cascading off around the edges of the stage at some point. We had a fountain made that telescoped out of the center of the, uh, from the center lift in the middle of the stage. It, it showed up Ooh. at Paisley Park. And we tested it outside. It, it was a telescoping fountain. It went up maybe about 19 feet. Wow. And it was, all the water was supposed <laughs> to drop down into a pool below it. And, of course, just around the perimeter of the pool were all the, all the keyboard racks hmm. and all sorts of expensive electronic uh. stuff. So we turned on the, the fountain, and the water went everywhere. And that was <laughs> about as far as that fountain got. It stayed outside. But there was always a lot of that, too, unfortunately. We get things made because he wanted it, and it never made it to the stage. But, yeah, yeah we had the car. Uh, so we had a three-quarter scale car made of the, uh, the Thunderbird that he had at that point. Yeah. Um, it had 
power windows, not for any other, other reason than he wanted power windows just in case. Um, just in case he wanted to did, lean out and... <laughs> totally. Put the window down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you had a hard top and, and then the top could come off. And it, it was what we were doing at that point, obviously, was because Sign of the Times had definitely excelled in what we were doing or anybody was doing at that point. This definitely took things oh, yeah. to another level. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a challenge because it was in the round. It, it became a lot more, you know, one person's, because our shows, were, there were points of silhouette and all that stuff. So one person's silhouette is another man's front light or another person's front light, you know. So it was how to get those moody things happening in the round. So that was a challenge lighting-wise. Plus, you had, I had all those people on stage. I think I had it between 28 to 32 spotlights I was calling at any, at any one point. And, you know, you've got that many people you're telling what to do. It took a lot of coordination because when you're running a show, you're running it in real time, but I'm calling spots ahead of time. So I'm calling things that are coming up at the same time running things that are happening at that point. So you had to know every single second of that show. Yeah, I'm and thinking what about was what's going up, on and yeah. what was coming up. And that fucker, he, <laughs> he knew how complex things were and for me at times. And he... And he'd go over there instead of over there and screw it all up. Oh, no, it was worse <laughs> than that. He knew I was lining up. He must have... I, I knew he knew I was lining up one of the most complex spot cues in the show. And I had just gotten it out of my mouth. And he says, Roy, put a spot on my shoe. Because <laughs> I was just about to call the cue, and I said, "Fuck!" And he just stood there, had his finger pointing down his shoe, and his his foot out in front of him. And I was like, "Fuck!" Because if I didn't spotlight his shoe, he'd call me out on it. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and you want to get you want to keep your full paycheck that week. Oh yeah. I mean, he, fortunately, I never was. I was never a victim of fines. But he Ooh, would just lucky. he just. <laughs> He always just, he would do it just to have a laugh. You, you could see that grin, that little smirk yeah. that he would get. <laughs> um, <laughs> I went back and said, no, nice one. Thank you very much. He, yeah. He very <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you, I'm just thinking on a, on a show as big as Love Sexy, and especially when, you know, you're playing one night in one city, you pack down, you go to the next city and do it almost the next night. On, on occasion. And then I imagine every venue must be different as well in terms of what they have, in terms of what you can use. I mean, it, it must have just been a logistical nightmare just trying to make sure every single venue had whatever it is you needed to set up and the space and uh, whatever it is you hang the things on. And I mean, that must have well, been a massive well, challenge, like just the logistics well, of carrying this thing around. Well, I mean, when you're, when you're touring, basically you carry the same sound, the same lighting system, the same stage set. Mm. Um, everything that's with the production, you carry the full production with you. All mm. the rigging, the things yep. that where everything hangs from, all that goes to every venue. So most, what what varies in venues is the actual weight capacity uh, oh, at the time. Yeah. So when you're when you're hanging in the middle of the room, that's the weakest part of any structure. <laughs> so. Mm. Of course, so we had, a, I mean, it, there was a lot of stuff up there. It was a heavy show for the time. And we were pu definitely pushing the limits of the buildings. Mm. So that, that, that was that variation. Then it comes into load-in. It's how the 
the access to actually getting the gear into the venue. Sometimes some are easier than others, how many trucks you can line up. Mm. But the actual the floor space sometimes varies. But it's pretty standard. If it's a hockey arena, most hockey arenas are pretty much the same size. You have to design everything around the premise of that footprint. Mm. But, you know, there are, there are variables. I guess I'd always assumed that, like, uh, those massive venues would supply the rigging, but obviously not. No, no, you don't rely on venues to mm, supply yeah, anything because yeah. it's always mm. crap. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they, they, they don't want to spend money on anything. Once they've spent it once, they don't want to maintain it. Yep. So as, thing, as times go on, the more independent you can become from a venue other than the actual venue itself as mm. a space, the better. You don't want to rely yeah. on anything that they've got. Just one thing I've got to say about that Love Sexy show, and I'm going to describe just one point, and I'm sure you'll know exactly when I'm saying it. I can't remember which song it was in, but Prince says, ladies and gentlemen, cat, and every single spotlight in that place goes on cat. And it's just the way that looks. Like every time I think of that Love Sexy concert that's on VHS, that's the thing I think of every single time is just well, she, all she those spotlights just going straight oh, yeah. down to that center stage. And it's just the visual look of that is it just blows my mind every time I see it. It's yeah, so it was good. Every single moving light, every spotlight, anything that can move was on her. Oh. Doing her little her doing the dance. shake thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> was yeah. that, was Love Sexy Tour when you started moving over to all those moving lights? Is it DMX, the, the thing that you use? Did that start on Love Sexy or was that... No, okay, because well, I mean, really, the first time I used moving lights, it was the first time using moving lights on... Like computer control on, and stuff, yeah. On, yeah, on, on Purple Rain. After that, then there wasn't any moving lights at all on Parade, and then, then Sign of the Times and Love Sexy or moving lights again. They're, the first moving lights that were invented were barrier lights, which in the control was very proprietary to their own thing. It wasn't like off the shelf. They had thousands and thousands of patents on their lights, so they can, everything had to be controlled off of their own system. It wasn't DMX. DMX was invented when other uh, moving light companies started. Uh, they had to come up with their own universal control system, so all the different manufacturers had mm. to decide, okay, we're going to use DMX to control our lights. We need a um, standard thing, yeah. Yeah, but Barry Lights, up to that point, there was only one other company that existed that started making movie lights called Morpheus, which used a different uh, control system. But mm. uh, I, I, I was still using moving uh, Barry Lights all through that period, so it was just their own system. Ah, okay. It was before, before DMX. Okay. And DMX, just for the nerds, is not the best way to control stuff. <laughs> they regret it now but it's too first. late <laughs> I'm sure it would have been good at the time but yeah you know better ways yeah, come well, they up had, yeah. they had a couple of choices and they picked that one and then they regretted it but mm. it is what it is hmm. well going from the Love Sexy tour to the nude tour which from a fan perspective is like a 180 degree flip is that also a decent way of describing your experience on that tour in the sense that it was way more bare bones and pared back Ooh. as far as the production was concerned? Uh, budget. That's the word. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. There we go. <laughs> yep. The we budget, blew, the budget we, tour. We blew it all on Love Sexy. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. It. And so 
so f- I mean, for you, was that it's just a case of just, you know, more basic stage lighting and making sure that the spot was on everyone at the right moment. Um, I mean, it did have color, right? But it yeah. was, I think the stage setup was probably basic, but the lighting was still a bit more involved. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have hydraulics or any of that stuff. It was just, it was a lot more stripped back. It was more about lighting than it. Uh, uh, effects and you know theatrical effects and stuff like that yeah I mean obviously you talked about budget so it's fair to say that the nude tool was a um, a way to hang on guys are we going too far with the expenditure here and we're just going to drop things back to raise a few more funds for future tours because it's not like he just well that was like you know obviously the Diamonds and Pearls tour coming up is obviously another big massive one with hydraulics and and things like that so the nude tool was how consciously was it a let's just drop the budget here on this one to raise some it funds. Was very, it was very conscious. I mean, yeah. we, we conscientious decision. I mean, it, like I said, we spent so much money on Love Sexy and it really kind of made sense anyway, even if it wasn't a budgetary thing, mm. um, where you kind of take a break from mm. the technology at, at that level because we did all we did on Purple Rain, which was pretty advanced for the time. And then we did the parade tour, which was a very visually strong, but technically not as, as advanced mm. uh, as, a, as Purple Rain. So you, you, you kind of, it's dynamics. It's like a flow. Mm. Mm. And then you go sign to the Times, which is big again, Love Sexy, even bigger again. You're up, yep. you're up, and then you're back down again for nude to or have a rest. <laughs> yep, exactly. And it, it served two purpose, giving everybody a break and also the, the pocketbook. So yeah. I mean, it was, it was called the nude tour. It's, you know, stripped back. You know, it's all yeah. about the music. It's not about the massive lights and stage show. So it all makes sense. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say about the Love Sexy tour, because I think in Europe, financially, they did okay. And then USA, not so great. And then they sort of, sort of made it back a bit in Japan. But overall, you know, you just think about the costs of moving. The whole production would just be Yeah, you, you astronomical. had to fly everything. Yeah, yeah. it was couple of 747s to get all that around wow you know it didn't do well in the states because people just didn't get him it didn't that get point. it he, yeah. he, he completely lost him the album cover threw him off and that was it mm. like you, i listened back to some of those u.s recordings of love, love sexy shows and you know i almost get a hint of desperation in his voice and he's just trying to get this message across and it's just not they're just not getting it. Like in Europe, like they seem to have gotten what he was trying to say, but in in USA, it just it didn't happen that that much at all. Oh, Americans, you know. <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> what can I say? I'm sorry. <laughs> they're not. When it comes to art, their their minds are. They, yeah. They, they prefer they, they they prefer McDonald's over yeah, uh, yeah an, exactly. an incredible meal. Musically, it's the same way. I think a lot of it also was the, it was a huge, huge mistake not coming to the States with Sign of the Times. Yeah. I think that would have helped things, but because for Americans, he went from Parade, which didn't really tour in the States, we just did a few. Yeah, it was pretty small. Spot. Yeah. So they, all they know, they went from. Purple Rain, really. From Purple Rain to Love Sexy. And it was yeah. like two different people. Not ready. Maybe maybe ill-prepared. Maybe the mass audience in the States, in America, was ill-prepared for that quantum leap, if you can call it, artistically, right? It's just well, because, yeah, like, because they've skipped. Said, they've, they've missed all the steps in between. So they don't see that evolution. They just mm. went from that to that. And it's like, this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> well, it wasn't as white bread at that yeah. point. 
Purple Rain was had a lot more commercial accessibility. Yeah. And I think Sign of the Times did too, where, again, the his persona and that picture on the album cover really threw people off. And Farnoli said, that's it. You know, it just, he was saying, it, just, it was just getting freaking people out. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing hmm. them stretched and naked <laughs> on an album cover with with the with the flower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he looks he looks he looks perfectly comfortable. But uh, we get we get the point. <laughs> I know a lot, of, a lot of places they like covered that cover up, and like you could just see his face. I think they like put some sort of something over the cover of it because it was you know people were offended by it. Crazy, yeah. It's crazy to think about it now. Is, I mean, Europeans and everybody else all over the world are a lot more open minded, particularly when it comes to art. And I think that's what he, that's, that was one thing that he discovered being in Europe during the filming of Ch- Under the Cherry Moon is he, he, mm. he could see the level of acceptance and the educated view of art and music versus the average American. The average American doesn't have, you know, we are so used to top 40 crap being yeah. shoved down your throats along with McDonald's and, and their fries and shit that, you know, it's this, it's America, you know, it's commercial. And mm. um, Europe, the cuisine's different. You know, you, you want to learn about a culture, you eat their food. That's it. And, hmm. you know, our culture is burgers and fries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because he's f- from around, around the world in a day up until Love Sexy, it's a much more cosmopolitan palette really there's so much diversity in his albums in the looks in the themes then there's a spiritual element so it's no surprise that it may have gone over the heads of the masses in in america and in you know north america but the interesting thing is that he always kept a core audience the hardcore audience they still they still went with him especially during that era it was a unique time i think for him and then that leads us into past the nude tour but prior to the diamonds and pearls tour experience there is you know the release of the album diamonds and pearls there's a whole lot of promo and and videos that he was doing at the time and speaking of videos you're credited as doing the production design for 1991's get off video which is arguably one of prince's raunchiest videos (laughs) but maybe (laughs) but well depending on who you ask but done in such a unique way and and i think brings a lot of european potentially influence into that design i mean what was the brief for that set uh was that kind of spawned from your creative um imagination you know what what do you recall about putting all that together well that was more it was more driven by him at that point well it was the both of us together but he kind of had a some idea some idea what he was doing. What it, what mm. the, he always had an idea what he was doing. I'm just, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> he and I had a very interesting dialogue or just way of speaking because he'd spoken his own language. You know, it wasn't necessarily straightforward stuff a lot of times, particularly when he was speaking in creative terms. And either you understood it and you could read his mind or you couldn't. And a lot of times it would just be a very abstract idea that would have to formulate and, you know, feed it and make it turn into something. He had a lot more defined idea. Well, I mean, it was kind of semi-Caligula in some sense. Yeah, definitely. That was kind of the motivation. Maybe he was feeling sorry that we never did the... 
my earlier thing with the, the Clockwork Orange five. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you got your. I think I think you got <laughs> you got some aspect of your orgy in there. That's yeah. for sure. So. Yeah, he, he, he threw me a bone finally. I mean, you think, <laughs> think about that MTV Awards and that stage. It's yeah, oh, you, can't, you can't look at that and cannot think Caligula to some extent. It's that's something oh, else. I mean, that the, stage. The, it was funny how when we did that, you know, obviously he didn't wear the assless pants during rehearsals. Yeah. So they were nervous to begin with. They kind of had a sense about what was coming. And originally, I mean, the girls were going to be naked, naked, naked. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. So we yeah. just throw on some, you know, a, a nylon body, you know, fishnet bodysuit, and then they're not naked anymore. Mm. So that was, I mean, they were pretty close. They might as well have been. But it was, <laughs> but when he turned around to the camera, <laughs> they, you know, his ass was hanging out. They, they, they freaked. <laughs> it was, it was hmm. pretty funny. <laughs> Shine a light on this, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say one thing. I want to go back. I don't. Because you were mentioning about his true fans. And, you know, when I was saying things about Americans, I was just saying Americans in general. Oh, yeah, yeah. His fans, his true fans understood and, and do understand who he was from the very get-go. They, got, they saw the depth. They, they, they could see further than on the surface. Mm. But that's what real fans are. You know, and unfortunately, like I said, when it comes to commercialism in the States... It's the same thing with our music here. It's very surface level. It's veneer. It's got no depth to it. Yeah. It's a lot more just a product. Get it out there, sell it, move on, do the next one. It's but, not a... Well, yeah. they don't want... They can't process things with depth. Or mm. it's not that they can't. They just... They don't have the patience. They don't have the education. And mm. that's the problem. So anyway, sorry. <laughs> I just wanted, I wanted to specify what I was saying. Let's talk about Australia. The okay. land down under. How's oh, that? Oh, yes. All right. Okay. So you were saying that you actually ran the lights for, mm -hmm. you know, all the tours that you were on every show. Matt, you might have missed a show here and there, but most of them you would have been there. Oh, no, I was there. I was there at every show. You never had a night off. You never were sick. You couldn't do it. You're always there no matter what. Yep. Wow. Oh, I could never get sick. There you go. Was, Who, who's was... going to do it? Who's going to do the job? No one no, knows I it never... like you. Exactly. I could not get sick. No. Trust me, I had some serious hangovers sometimes. <laughs> oh, jeez. I did. There, there was one tour, though, I did. I wasn't, it was self-induced. I was actually, I was sick. Uh, I was, had a flu or something. And I had, a, it sounds gross, but I had a bucket next to me during the show because I just, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I had a fever, I was sick, and that's, but I had to be there. Prince didn't walk past and go, what's with the bucket? Or <laughs> No, <laughs> I don't think he ever, thank God, I never saw it. But, you know, I learned how not to sleep working mm. with him. You got to um, keep up, yeah. Yeah, there were times when I'd be up three days straight without any oh, sleep. Man. But he was really that. sweet to me. You know, he would come at four or five in the morning, well, it was close to three or four, and he'd bring snacks to me. At night. Sugar, and, sugar, stay awake. <laughs> yeah, well, that exactly. Well, his his cure for a headache was Doritos. He told me that one time. I said, "No, Doritos are not doing anything to take your head away, headache away." He said, "You haven't eaten, and it's just some kind of nourishment. So you got a headache because you're hungry." Mm. So. <laughs> oh man, yeah, Diamonds and Pearls tour, first time coming to Australia for Prince. Uh, mm -hmm. 90, was it 1992? Yeah. And, you know, that show was a pretty big production, stage and lighting-wise. Do you have any particular recollections from coming to Australia that time? 
Because that was that would have been the only time you came here with him. I'm guessing I'm coming to, to Australia. Ninety two. Yeah, they, we'd never been. You didn't come here again until two thousand three. Yeah, you were so that long was, gone. Yeah. Yeah, that was the only time. Yeah, that was the only time I'd been there with him. I don't really yeah. remember a lot. That's, that's horrible. Sometimes it's all a, just it's all a blur. <laughs> little, little gaps, only because unfortunately there are other th- shows going on in between all that stuff. But um, mm. I mean, we were pretty early on. We were pretty early on in the tour. I think you did about four or five shows in Japan first, and then you came here. Right. We were right near the start of the tour, or so. Yeah, it's probably just a distant memory now. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. No, I, I, I mean, I'm, I've always loved coming to Australia. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time there when I was working with the NXS. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, you would be. What a rust, I'll just say, just quietly. Um. <laughs> just dropping, you know, Michael Hutchins, Freddie, yeah. uh, yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if you want. A few lightweights. I did. <laughs> you want to hear a funny story? It was, it was, well, the last time I saw Prince was, I hadn't seen him for 10 years after I'd left. And it was when we're at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies in New York. And that was the infamous guitar solo. Ah, uh, yeah. And we had an hour and a half by ourselves to just kind of sit down in the middle of the uh, the ballroom and talk and stuff. So that was that was pretty amazing. But I, you know, we talked about you know just what we'd done together and all of that, and hopefully to do something again together. Um, and I, at that point, I believe yes, I'd been working with McCartney at that point, and mm. Paul and I got into a discussion about Prince at one point, <laughs> and he. You know, obviously respected Prince, and I know Prince respected him. And so Paul wanted to invite him to a show in Minneapolis. And Paul had a dressing room made up for him, all decorated and all that stuff. You know, he was all excited about Prince coming to visit. And I hadn't seen him, and Prince had never been to a show that I had done for somebody else. And Uh, and so we were waiting backstage, thinking he was going to show up any moment, and the bodyguard was there. And the bodyguard's phone rings, and he's talking to him, and he hands the phone to Paul. Paul said, yeah, 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 man, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. (laughs) And he hands the phone back, and he looks at me, he goes... He said he's packing. I said, what? He goes, yeah, he said he's packing. I said, Prince never packed a suitcase in his life. <laughs> so that's a big joke with Paul now. But, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> I think he was just intimidated, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I think he was, you know, it was just uh, something he kind of got cold feet and didn't want to come. Yeah. I don't think he went anywhere. Yeah. Uh, well, the fact that he said he was packing was a big hint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right, and, and oh, was well. that was that just literally to say, literally to catch up, right? Just hey, we're in town. Why don't you swing by? Come and see the show. Well, we were just, well Paul and I were talking about because yeah, up to that point, Prince wasn't playing hits and stuff like that, you know. And that's how the conversation started with Paul. And he said, you know, you know, he has to play the hits. I think it's important he do the hits. And let's talk to him about doing that. And I said, sure, let's, just, let's have a go. Then <laughs> he never showed up. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So after Diamonds and Pearls, you did Act 1, Act 2 shows. Was the Act 2, was that the last stage sort of thing you designed? Or did you, because you were there till 94, right? Yeah. There was, 94, we know there was this endorphin machine, this massive sort of <sighs> stage thing. Was that you? Were you responsible for that? No, no, no. <laughs> somebody sent, somebody sent him this concept and had it made. You know, it was just some, some fan came up with, the oh, wow. uh, female reproductive organs. That's the one, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that stage that, is out of control. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was weird. Uh, womb with a view. Yeah. That's what we used to do. <laughs> <laughs> 
That was so, a crazy setup. Okay, so that wasn't was, you. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just it was just handed to me to deal with. Oh, okay. So yeah, because like I know that he had he had like his own little mixing desk like behind the curtain yeah, that of was, that thing, and he had like the travel travelator thing that used to come out from the middle. So it, it was <laughs> it was an interesting setup, <laughs> to say the least. That was <laughs> that was when you wanted to control everything, you know, mm-hmm. and I was. We had talked about, because he wanted to, he talked about controlling lights and all of that stuff for certain things that he wanted to do. If, you know, if you wanted to improvise on guitar and having the lights react to the guitar and all that. And at that time, I mean, I started experimenting with the, uh, the Fairlight uh, oh, yeah. that we had. And we connected uh, MIDI to it. It was kind of a new MIDI controller that could interface with the Fairlight in a very basic sense, where I used the Fairlight to trigger off strobes. And so it was me just trying to develop how he could control things. But I tried to explain to him, I said, you know, that when you want to control lights, I said, you have to be very definitive about Mm. how you approach it. Because I said, if you just want a light to turn a certain color for a particular tone on your guitar, I said, that's fine. But when you start playing your guitar, we're going to end up with a rainbow all the time you're not going to have nothing is going to look any different Mm. so i said we have to define and build something in a way we have to build cues that you can trigger off for certain things yeah but you just can't randomly make the lights do that i mean you can but it'll just look like crap Mm. it looked like like a a bag of skittles so so, But that's where he was heading for me. Obviously, he wanted to control the front of house sound from the stage. It's kind of an interesting concept. Because I think um, Scotty was still Michael B's drum tech around that time. So maybe he wasn't happy Um, with his current sound guy before Scotty came on. So he's like, I'm going to try and do it myself then. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I think at that point, Cubby had left. Yeah. I don't think, yeah, Cubby was done. And I forgot who was mixing at that point. But it was—it wasn't somebody that had been around at that point. When it, there was a revolving door of people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, once Cubby left, there was a new front of house guy all the time. And when he wanted to mix from inside the womb, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> there was great panic in the sound company because obviously they didn't want their company to have a bad reputation for crappy sound due to the fact that Prince wanted to make it from the stage. So they were doing everything they could to kind of go with the concept, but still maintain some control. So there was somebody in front mm. of the house that was doing the uh, master as far as volume and stuff like that. And then he was mixing all the uh, individual stuff. It was not a... <laughs> it did not, not sound ideal. good. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so just uh, something we've touched on slightly earlier is... You know, we know how much Prince put into making that first entrance and the big reveal, like on stage, you know, making that something that people are going to remember. You know, how did you come at that specifically from like the staging and lighting perspective? Like, you know, what sort of conversations did you have about just making those entrances have that wow factor and just, you know, making people lose their mind with this slow reveal and stuff like that? Well, a lot of it was based off of silhouettes. You know, a silhouette Mm. is always a much stronger than front light, back light or a silhouette is a much stronger image yeah. than when you've got somebody lit. Because when you front light people, then everything gets, it's a flat world. Mm. And so we used to do it with either with the 10K 
uh, was on Purple Rain that backlit him. Or, well, actually, it was, it was not just Purple Rain. We had it on 1999, too. But it was, or even like the Venetian Blinds from from 1999, where he'd be up there and be silhouetted against the... Uh, the blinds. It was just the idea of the audience just knowing his, that he was there, and that it never gave him away completely. He didn't see his face, and it, you know, and it didn't really matter at that point because they knew who you know. It was about giving them enough to keep them going. Mm. It was like being a rat in a cage. You could, uh, or a um, never mind. It was <laughs> trying to think of a of a, um, a maze. You can smell the cheese, you just can't get to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bad analogy. <laughs> because those, those, that big entrance is something that he never forgot. He never lost that. Like when we saw him mm. on the Piano and Mike tour in what, February 2016 in Australia. Yeah, the last shows, he just, some of the last shows he played. There him. was just like this doorway and it was like backlit. And again, it was the silhouette. And he just like sort of slowly came out and just stood there for a few seconds and just, you know, this is in the Sydney Opera House and the noise from that audience just at seeing his silhouette, you know, people just lost their shit. And it was just, man, you, he makes an entrance no matter, you know, he never lost that, never lost that right up until then. It was just, people lost it. It was great. <laughs> it was like this uh, green light. So it was like the alien had landed. Like. It was sort of a bit of green, a bit of gold. Hey, that's Australian colours, green and gold. There you go. And, um, <laughs> he was being very conscientious. <laughs> now, it's, it's classic, uh, classic mm. lighting. I mean, it is the strongest look, you know, close encounters and all of that stuff. It's, it's Yeah, the silhouette. Some people call it the god light, but it's just, you know, uh, it's yeah. just because the light is emanating around you. You know, it's, it's your aura. Yeah. It's basically what it, what it emulates. I wonder if it's like psychologically, you know, from being a child and looking up to your parents and there's like, you know, the sunlight behind you. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of a weird psychological trick, I guess. Like, yeah, it could be. I mean, it could yeah. be power, well, it's a powerful statement, yeah. I mean, it, it is, you know, when you don't see everything, your brain naturally starts to make up a story, whatever mm. it is. Fills it in. Yeah, so you're, you're, that's, that's basically what it is. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm wondering also, like, when you're running lights for, for shows over that period of time, you know, in keeping in mind with the music and, and storytelling throughout the, the musical performance, how much of the lighting was done from a choreographed perspective that you had put together or, you know, versus how much was done on the fly? You know, how, how much room did you have to just change things up as needed? And did you make decisions in the moment just to keep that emotional vibe on the stage happening? There was always very rehearsed bits, and then there were gaps of where improvisation would happen. Uh, I knew where those were going to happen at all times, although sometimes hmm. he would just randomly chuck them in, but you had to be prepared hmm. for it. I mean, he was always, yeah. it was always a test. Basically, yeah. that's what it was. You know, he just wanted to make sure everybody was paying attention, including me. Keep them on their toes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I got a question about, do you have any like memorabilia, like stuff like photos or drawings or models of, of some of those classic stages that you have um, in your possession? Or is that kind of, do you like having that kind of stuff to bring back memories or? I mean, he, I've got. He'll be asking you for your address next. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just, <laughs> I, I've got, <laughs> I've been through four divorces. So over the, 
over the course mm -hmm. of time, when you go through a divorce, things kind of get lost and stuff. But I've got most of my drawings. I do have the Sign of the Times renderings, uh, or con conceptual drawings. Mm. Uh, I think I've got the nude tour too. Would you make models or that's that sort of thing, or to like no, show? We never made models. Well, we might have. Did we make a model of Love Sexy? But as a whole, generally, never. Okay. It was just drawings. I think um, Captain might have touched on this earlier, but do you recall a time when, I guess, either Prince asked for a stage design or you wanted to do a stage design later in his career and it was like, even though we have the budget for this, it's just, it's just too crazy, can't be done or for whatever reason, you know, we're not going to pull it off. Was there such a thing? Um, yeah. No, because once Prince and Stephen split, uh, the world changed a lot because it was a revolving door of accountants and business, you know, or business managers and lawyers and managers and everybody was out to save the day because, you know, he spent a lot of money. Mm. When we talked about things and he wanted something to happen, money wasn't an option. You know, I mean, it was just, it was never anything that you, you discussed money with him. You just made it happen. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, depending on how fast you have to make it, if it was last minute, it cost a lot of, it would sometimes, if you're last minute, last minute things cost four times the amount of money. So, yeah. <laughs> um, there are a lot, I, yes, I spent a lot of money, but it was, I didn't do it, you know, haphazardly at all. I mean, just did what I, what was expected of me and what he wanted. It had to happen. And I never argued with him about money because if, if you've, if you argued with him about money, you, you definitely get an earful. Wouldn't end um, well. <laughs> no, not at all. So with all these people trying to save the day financially, it was always a struggle, you know, mm -hmm. and I'd have to explain to them that they had to understand that if he asked for something, no matter what it cost, it was going to happen. Do your best, you know, make it they, work. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they, they, they didn't want to believe that. They just thought that was me just filling their ears full of stuff. And then it would be, then I'd have to prove it to them by having them talk to him <laughs> about mm. <laughs> the financial thing and then they would find out the response from him about yeah. when they talked to him this about is what we're dealing was, with <laughs> right yeah. So, yeah. yeah so I tried to tell you but there you go yeah um, so yeah it, it just <laughs> I, I became it's not like I wasn't budget conscious before but it became a lot more of a struggle and a lot more of an issue that I would have to deal with with these people and so it, and I, I didn't want him to spend all that money. I mean, I did a lot of times that we wasted so much money, but you know, it just, it was what kept things going. So it was, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get too far with stuff like that. I mean, it just, it, it, it became, it almost became a Debbie Downer at times with these people, mm. <laughs> you know, it just kept spiraling down more and more and more over a course of time. Yeah. Things change, right? Time mm. changes. And, and then also I'm, I'm imagining that as the larger an operation becomes, the more difficult it may become to manage and kind of, you know, things start getting lost potentially as well, right? Yeah. And I think there was also, there were, there were not the right people keeping an eye on things. You mm. know, it was where, because he wasn't going to, I mean, he just expected things to happen. So there was times where you just didn't know where, and I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of things have disappeared because... He was never aware of everything that he had or bought or owned or whatever. Mm. And the inventory wasn't, you know, in place. 
and if it wasn't the if there was inventory, he wasn't aware of it. I seriously doubt it. So it, uh, I don't know. It just it 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 mm. just it, it, <laughs> it it just got to a really funky place. Yeah. Right, and not in the good way too, because fun. We love the fun. No, no, no. We love fun, but not this kind. <laughs> the bad one. <laughs> this is the bad. Yeah. Not, yeah. not even bad. Yeah. It's it's the really bad funk. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, you know, I'm sure guitars have walked. I know all sorts of stuff disappeared over the years. Mm. Moving on to a, a happier topic. A happier note. <laughs> <laughs> out of out of all these, you know, amazing stage setup productions that you put together. I mean. I've probably got a good guess on the answer, but what was your, uh, I don't know, everyone says what's your favorite, but what was your most, I don't know, what's your favorite? Personally, what are you most proud of, maybe? <laughs> what's, my, what's my favorite show or a stage set? Just say, I would have to yeah. say, hmm. I would have to say Sign of the Times. Oh, I would have I mean, guessed Love it, Sexy. It was, it was, okay. It, what they, they, Pretty close? Sign of the Times, <laughs> yeah, very close. The thing yeah. is, is that for me, I mean, technically what we were doing with Love Sexy was phenomenal. I mean, it was visually as as a as a stage set. It was pretty wild but because my head works in both lighting and stage set. Lighting yeah. will always if lighting can't achieve what you, you can't achieve necessarily the same level of effects or emotion in in the round that you can when you're at in a we call it proscenium or one end of the mm. arena. You know, like I said, silhouettes. Yeah. Depends on what side of the stage you're on, whether it's a silhouette or a front light. Yeah. So it is technically, I mean, Love Sexy by far was amazing. Uh, as far as theatrical, uh, I, I think definitely Side of the Times outweighs it. Yeah. And would you also say that that was the most enjoyable, that satisfied you creatively, like putting that together? Um, or is that a different one? Yeah. No, I think they're both, they both were. I mean, it's, yeah. when people ask me these questions, you know, it's like talking about mm. a child. Yeah. You, know, you, you can't pick which one. Child is better. <laughs> no, they all are who they are. They have their own personality and the, re- the reason why those personalities are the way they are. They were all great for what they were at the time. Mm. Yeah. Uh, when you look back at them, they don't look so great. But a lot of times, because mm. I don't like to look at things I've done once I've done them. Mm. That's okay. We love to look at them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was hard. I, I tried to watch the show last night. Oh, the Purple Rain, Rain one, yeah. And it, the, 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 the problem for me is that it never translated really what it was like, not just because of the vibe mm. of the audience and all that stuff, because television can never do that, but the limitations of the cameras at that time, the technology of the broadcast of the cameras, uh, what they could capture, the sensitivity, how this, you know, the level of what, the broadcast of what this, how the sat- satellites broadcast, you know, the limitation, the mm. bandwidth and all that stuff. What you saw was not the goal, what came from the satellite. It was directly onto uh, yeah. on tape at that point. But it was just the limitation of the cameras. It just didn't have the, the level of where things are right now. I'm looking at it from my eye, which is not a good eye to look at as somebody yeah. is trying to be, be positive about it. You just look back and go, oh, I could have done this. I could have done that. You know, if I had this technology now, I could have done that. <laughs> oh, it, it, yes, absolutely. I don't, for me, though, it's not, I appreciate what I did. At the time. With, with what you had. At the time. Yeah. yeah. I just, unfortunately, it wasn't, it couldn't capture it. Mm. On, on tape the way what it was like when you were sitting in the audience well that's something we've noticed like 
just as fans, you watch back all these concerts, whether they're officially released things or otherwise things that just escaped somehow. So many of the concerts, as amazing as they were in person, you know, they just don't translate that well when you're watching it back on, on, a, on a TV. Whether it's, yeah. you know, I, I mean, it'll never compare to being in the audience there, but it seems a lot of the shows, like you said before, they were pretty dark and they ran dark. And when you're filming that, it just, the end result's not going to be that good. And even when things are specifically lit to be filmed, they still don't come across as great as they yeah, as uh, they could have. So, yeah, that's something we've noticed just watching back a lot of these shows. Well, you know, it, it's, it's very, particularly back then, because the cam- cameras weren't so sensitive, that you, they couldn't react to light levels the way they could mm. now. So back then you really had to overlight yeah. for the camera to see it. But then if you were in live, in, in, if you were in the audience, it was just overlit. Too much, yeah. It, it didn't have any vibe to it. So capturing anything that we were doing because they were so dynamically moody and, and, and transitional uh, and extreme at times that it just the cameras just couldn't deal with it. Yeah. Just kind of t- maybe closing a loop on the, on the whole live concert experience. When we think about shows, I mean, you know, a live concert, a great live concert is it's all about entertainment, you know, energy, emotion between the audience and the performer when you were you know in the hot seat and thinking about all that how do you balance just generally speaking how do you balance all of those elements in the production and then in the presentation process so that you don't you know overpower the artist or you know really kind of get your message across as as well well i mean as i said before i mean all i ever do is it's an extension of the emotion of what the artist is doing or trying to portray it, that it, whether through music or just themselves, they are always the star is always the star, and the lighting is not mm. the star ever, or never should be. They yeah. can be parallel to each other, but one cannot. The lights can never overtake an artist unless it's an artist that needs it. <laughs> and there yeah. are some that need. <laughs> There's probably a lot of those these days. <laughs> There's some of them that you have to bury them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you have to make up for the fill in the fill in the gaps. But yeah. but anybody like Prince or any artist that's at that level, it's an enhancement. And so you have to make sure that they are always seen as the star and the focal point. But it's also lights should be the it's the enhancement to the music. It's a journey, a visual journey that goes hand in hand sonically. With what's happening and. Uh, like I said, you know, lights can make a sound louder. Hmm. It's sometimes where I would do things where there might be a rhythm gap. I would do something in the gap instead of in the obvious place. Mm. Uh-huh. Just to kind of throw things off a little bit, give it a little bit more funk to it. And, 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 and Well, that's the thing. Prince always it, said that, you know, one of the definitions of funk is space. Yeah, so you totally. using space in a different way, that's that's right up there with how it's supposed to go. Yeah. I mean that's that's we hit it off immediately that way. Yeah. But you know, it's seeing a show should be like a religious experience. It's the only way I can explain it. Hmm. Oh, that's a good reference to the twenty twelve tour book which we wrote that exact line. Akin <laughs> <laughs> to a religious experience. That's exactly what it says. Mm, that's but that's right. what yeah. my first show was to me. Yeah. You know, and wow. I've I've tried to emulate that emotion and that feeling and that experience since I started as a designer. That's the pivot point off of everything. Mm. Trying to move people and transform them into a, a, a world that makes them forget 
their day-to-day life. Um, just just for a few just, hours, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. or yeah, or hopefully that they leave going, "Whoa, that's something that I'll never forget." You know, mm. and it's like because it was life changing for me when I went to see my first show, and I, I would hope that I could do that for some other people. You know, that they, it's not about me; it's just about the experience. And if I can help make that experience yeah. happen, that's yeah, that's my whole mo. <laughs> Well, I think I speak on behalf of all of us on the show when I say that certainly for the three of us and all of us on the Peach and Black podcast, for Prince's huge global fan base and fan community, uh, your contributions have been so massive. You know, the, the visual aspect, it's so intertwined with people's memories of mm. not only errors, but shows they've seen, whether they were in the audience or, um, you know, they're watching them, watching old footage now and it's just so intrinsically embedded in that history, which is now everlasting, right? So it's on. It, so much of it is on celluloid. It'll, mm-hmm. it'll hopefully never go. It'll hopefully never go away. So we wanted to, on behalf of everyone around the world, not only thank you for coming on the show, but thank you for for being part of that creative process and and contributing so much. We still get goosebumps when we watch the end of that that sign of the. I mean, the whole sign of the times thing is brilliant. Um, but you know, the, the cross with those lights going absolutely oh yeah crazy, and it's just it's just it is religious experience is probably the best way to put it. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being so kind and wonderful. <laughs> I was, I'm waiting for MC to say uh, a peek behind the curtain, as he always likes to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, it, re- it really is. I mean, talking talking to the likes of yourself, it's just it really is. You know, we draw the curtains back and and um, get this glimpse of what it must have been like. So it's uh, yeah. super super fascinating for us, and I'm sure our listeners really really enjoy it. Well, it was a, it was a, a trip like no other. Um, <laughs> you know, I I always tell everybody that um, I started at the top. And after that, my life, anything after that was easy. Yeah. Not that it was easy. It's not that it's easy, <laughs> easy. It was just easier. Oh, well, yeah. You know, after, after Prince, yeah. Where do you go? <laughs> I started at, at the ultimate boot camp. Mm. And uh, what he did to me, and he did with everybody, is he, he showed me or opened me up to who he saw I was versus how I saw myself. Uh-huh. And pushed me to that limit. But he was do- he'd always do that to him. That's something we hear, like, from so many people. It's like, you know, he pushed people. It's like, you don't know how to do it? Just go and do it. You'll figure it out. Make make it happen. He just pushes he, them oh, to yeah. do things they think they couldn't do, and usually it worked. Oh, yeah. No, he threw me into everything like that. Yeah. Just so. But he did that to himself all the time, too. So he had to respect <laughs> that. Oh, thanks for being so generous with your time as well. We've taken yeah. a good chunk, but yeah. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, and that was Leroy Bennett talking to us on the podcast and sharing a whole bunch of stories and anecdotes and history with uh, with regards to his time with Prince. We thank Leroy for coming on the show. Absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, it was a pleasure to have him. Uh, we'll have him back anytime. And um, thanks for listening. You've been listening to another classic Peach and Black podcast. Catch all our episodes at podbean.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, Mixcloud, and all good podcast directories. Search for Peach and Black Podcast. You can continue your Peach and Black experience online. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The Peach and Black Podcast is written and produced by Rob S., Player, Toe Jam, 
and Captain. Original theme music by ToeJam. Audio production and additional audio editing by Captain at Funky Temple Studios. Episode artwork by Reverend. Share our podcast with your friends and Prince fans. If you love our show, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can contact the Peach and Black Podcast by email at peachandblackpodcastofficial at gmail.com.